Joining me today on this week's Cine Chill is writer, director, cinematographer, producer and YouTuber with one of the best YouTube channels for filmmakers. I'm really excited that this week's guest is Darius Britt. I was already thinking about moving in the direction of film. Originally, I wanted to be a comic book illustrator, comic book artist. That didn't really work out so well for me. My brain wasn't really wired to do that kind of trade. I think you need like a certain degree of photographic memory to to pull that off. I was like basically a size 10 model trying to be a supermodel. <laughs> and it just wasn't going to work, you know, just it just I just didn't have it. So I'd already been considering moving into the direction of film. I thought about writing novels, but I'm not a writer like that. Uh, I like I'm a visual person. And that's the whole reason why I got an illustration in the first place. So I thought of going to film. And oddly enough, the movie that was the tipping point for me was a film called Possession with uh, Sam Neill, the guy from Jurassic Park. It was a transgressive film made in the 80s. Really, really wild, wild film. And I mean, I think if anyone saw this after me mentioning it, they'd be like, what? This is the movie that made you want to make films? <laughs> and it's it's a movie I would never want to make, but it's a film that showed me that you can do other things. Because up till that point, I'd seen, you know, Jurassic Park, Star Wars, all these big, big movies, you know. Yeah. And Possession was the first film I had seen that was just wild in a domestic <laughs> way, though, like completely wild, completely um, nutty and yeah. just engaging, though. Um, and so I was like, wow, so you can do stuff like this in film, too? OK, I'm all in. I am all in. And funny enough, I want to say a week ago, I had seen the movie again after not seeing it in like seven years, seven or yeah. eight years. And I saw the film and I asked myself, what in the world did I see in this film? <laughs> <laughs> it's it's the oddest thing. Like, I fondly remember that movie being a tipping point for me. Yeah. And now that I've come so far in my understanding of film and story and characters and how all that works, now when I look at the film, I'm like, what? What is this? Yeah. So I don't know. I think it was just right time, right place, right inspiration. I got what I needed out of it, moved on. And now it'll always have a special place in my heart, but it's definitely not like the best film. That's really interesting because when you like, you know, everyone I ask that question, they always say some big, you know, Spielberg blockbuster like Jurassic Park or, you know, or like E.T., which is mine. Um, and when you said Sam Neill, I thought he's not going to say The Omen 3, is he? Because I can't look at Sam Neill without thinking he's the devil. Have you seen The Omen 3? The, is it The Awakening or something, is it called? Um, I don't think I saw the third one. I may have seen pieces of it. I know what you're talking about, though. Yeah, yeah, because he was in that. And he was also in uh, Dead Calm. And it's like one of those things when he played a performance so well and then you see him in like something else where he's not bad. In the back of my mind, I'm going, he's bad. No, you're <laughs> bad. You're bad. <laughs> exactly. I can enjoy Jurassic Park and Star Wars and big films. I enjoy those. But mm. sometimes, you know, I'm more interested in... Um, I mean, how should I describe it? Like characters who are doing something very raw... You know, yeah. it doesn't have to be a special effects smorgasbord. It doesn't have to be big and epic. Sometimes it can be something very simple and deliberate, you know? Yeah. Um, and I find I'm attracted to films like that a lot of the times, too, because I can relate with them. And they're 
accessible. That's something I can create. Like sometimes it gets old when you see these huge epic films and you're like, okay, well, when am I going to get like $300 million to make a movie like that? (laughs) You know, I mean, it's like it's there's only so many of them you can see before it's like, okay, that's cool in the theater. But I want to watch something that I could probably actually make and, you know, glean some inspiration from, try different shots. I wish there was more directors like nolan who can make a popcorn blockbuster but he can make an intelligent popcorn blockbuster i like that he doesn't assume the audience is stupid which i think a lot of blockbusters do especially the likes of like michael bay feels like he has to explain every single thing whereas nolan he's like you know you just coming along for this ride and I'm not going to dumb it down. And I, you know, I like that. I actually have a huge respect for the whole Mumblecore movement and I get a lot of inspiration from them, which is yeah. part of the reason why I shoot the the micro films and things that I do is because I, I had reached a point in filmmaking where I got really tired of spending so much money and so much time on every freaking project you do, man. You know, and it's just like you spend five years on a feature and, you know, it's just it's overwhelming and it's too much. And I started wanting the whatever happened to just being able to pick up a camera and just go shoot something, you know. And then that's when I started diving into the Mumblecore movement. And I'd seen a few of their movies before, but I was looking for a model to gleam like, okay, how do we do this like super cheap, super fast, super efficient model of filmmaking where we can just strip the process down, lean it out and become more prolific. Um, Yeah. And once I got like a lot further into that and started just watching all their interviews and figuring out like, okay, how are they doing sound? You know, and it's like, they don't always talk about the process, but if you watch enough of their stuff, you'll get little tidbits here and there. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, once I started doing more of that, it's just been great. Like it's way, it's so much more fun to be able to just pick up a camera and go shoot something. Um, and once you do it a lot, you start to know what kind of shortcuts you can take here and there. And it's just, a lot better. I mean, I'm not opposed to spending money on films. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. Some things you definitely need to spend money on. But when you're not doing those things, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, you got to be able to shoot and still practice, yeah. you know, some kind of way. I think as filmmakers in general, we don't shoot enough. And I do want to do more short films myself. It's just, you know, it's that, that, that situation of time. And, you know, I, I have done short films and I just found, you know, when you don't have the budget and you're relying on people like friends or whatnot, and then they let you down, it just becomes exhausting. Like I did a 40 hour film thing last year and it was great, but I needed like a month off after doing it because I was so, and it wasn't because of the weekend. It was the build up to the weekend. It was getting everybody in place, all that stuff that goes with that. But as much as you can pick up the camera and go make something, it's hard to to make, you know, like something with actors and sound and, you know, all that type of stuff. But I think the main thing is, like you say, just keep doing it, you know, and, and learn from from what you're doing. So, yeah, what was your, your background with uh, getting started? For me, it wasn't, you know, as much as I thought I loved drawing, it wasn't drawing that I loved. It was the potential to tell a story is what I really loved in a, in a way to do it where I felt like I was in control. Um, because all you need is a pencil paper, maybe some colors, maybe Photoshop and a story and you could create something. And I liked the independence of it. So when I moved into film, um, at around 23, that's when I decided, Hey, yep, I'm going to go to school for it. I'm just going to jump in the pool. 
I didn't miss drawing at all. Like once I got into it, once I got on my first film set, uh, and I learned very quickly the artifice of film, you know, like yeah. all the refrigerator lights are actually lights because, you know, you got to unplug the refrigerator for sound and all that. And I was <laughs> like, wow, there's so much that goes into this process that yeah. is invisible. And I was in love with it ever since. Didn't even look back. I have not missed drawing. Um, and film clicked for me in a way that illustration never did. Like when I got into film, things just made sense to me. And then when I started learning about acting, it just made sense. Um, writing to a certain extent, that took a little longer to click. And it took a lot of punches in the face getting feedback, especially on my first feature. I had like a four and a half hour feedback session, nine people ripped into it. And <sighs> I learned so much from that one session. It just completely changed my whole perspective on writing because there are the things that you think you know, and then there's what you know. And sometimes you, you get taught all these platitudes in film school, and you hear these things, you know, start the scene as late as you can, exit early as you can, yada, yada, yada. Mm. The importance of three-act structure and, you know, where your plot points should be. And it's like you hear these things, but there's no context for it until you make the mistake in your own work. Then all of a sudden there's context for mm. the lesson. And it, it like sticks way deeper than anything else. Um, and I think that was a pivotal point for me is when I had my feature script destroyed. And it took me six months to draft after draft after draft, working on it, working all these things out that really taught me a lot of the things I understand about writing and character. Um, that I carry forward even now, even the consulting I do and all that, it's like, I learned so it's like ridiculous how much I learned from that one session. Yeah. Um, but that's probably like a super long answer to a simple question. <laughs> no, no, that's great. That's, that's, that's really good. Um, was that the feature film? Is it unsound? The, uh, was that yeah. a feature? How did that, um, did that turn out how you hoped? It did. Um, it did really well in the fest circuit. I still have yet to release it. It's just there's a lot of business and legal stuff I got to go through. And we got to get another sound mix and all that. And all right. so it's like a little bit of a process before getting it released out there. And we're definitely going to do the self-distribution thing. We've had a few offers, but none of them kind of met our our standards of what we think the movie should be released under. And also, you know, I feel like. I have the potential to get it in front of a large audience. So I don't want to go through a distributor who doesn't have that same capability. Right. Usually okay. They're just going to turn around and say, well, how many followers do you have? Okay, well, we'll release it. And then you let all your followers know. And it's like, oh, well, but what are you doing though? You know? like, <laughs> yeah, so yeah. what do I need you for? If that's all you're going to do is yeah, exactly. turn around and get, you know, so business wise, it makes way more sense for us to just self self distribute it. But, um, but yeah, it did really well. I was very, very happy with it. And like I said, I just learned so much off that one film. Like after going and making a feature and spending tons of money, going to the fest circuit, seeing how your film plays in front of a live audience over and over and over and over again. Um, the darn near year I spent editing that film. Um, it's just like I was I did everything on the film. I did the score. So after like doing a project to that extent and then coming back away from that, back into short films and micro films and all that. Yeah. You don't see it the same anymore. Sure. You just don't see it the same. And I think it's a good thing. I think it's a really good thing. 
Um, I don't even see the the business side of it the same anymore. I mean, after being out on the fest circuit and seeing all the crazy amounts of money people spend on films and the weird deals they get and seeing how the market moves, um, coming back out of that world, it really gives you perspective. I think that's the best way to put it. I gained a lot of perspective out there. And that's a lot of the perspective I go into my YouTube channel with. That's why I keep telling people, you don't have to spend a whole lot of money. You know, if you're trying to get good at film, that should be what you're trying to do right now. You should not be trying to be Spielberg and you've only touched a camera two times, you know, like <laughs> yeah. you need to work on your craft first. You need to understand these basics first. You got the rest of your life to go throwing money around. Trust me, there's <laughs> plenty of time to go blow money. There is no rush on that. Um, and I think too, people, too many people are so ready to jump the gun and become famous overnight and it's like famous for what you don't know what you're doing yet bro you don't you don't know what there's so much to learn like and um and to further compound that there's they're in a rush to become like the next big thing the next chris nolan but but they're not taking the time to to learn it with like micro projects you know like the best way to learn something is to pick it up and actually do it right so I'll give you two realities. One reality, somebody gets a camera, they get all this equipment, and then they're like, okay, cool, I'm going to be the next Chris Nolan. I got this great idea. You know, I don't know much about story structure. I haven't taken time to research it, play around with it, experiment with it, anything. But I got this idea. I'm going to write a 30-page script. I'm going to go find money, run a crowdfund campaign, get all this money, and then I'm going to shoot this thing. And then they do that, and then they end up shooting it like four months from now, right? But before that time, they haven't done anything with the camera. So they're expecting to pick the paintbrush up for the first time and paint the Sistine Chapel. <laughs> it's like you you don't you you're not painting enough, bro. You know, the other reality, they get the camera. Maybe they have a short film idea they want to do. But instead of jumping to doing that, they just bust out microfilms, just crank them out. We're talking little scene studies. Everything he, he sees on YouTube of, you know, how to build tension or whatever, he goes and he shoots a tiny little micro scene with that, whether it's two actors, whether it's himself just doing vlogs. I've learned so much about filmmaking, just vlogging stuff I didn't even realize I would learn. It's like just the hands on the camera is what you need. So this other reality, this person, he just cranks out microfilms, right? Say in four months, he shoots 10, 12 of them. That guy is going to be way more prepared to shoot his short film than mm -hmm. the other guy who never touched his camera and he's obsessed with just becoming the next big thing. Because the first, the second guy, he actually put into work to learn the craft. He wasn't going blowing all the money. It's like, I have 10 bucks in my pocket. Let's go shoot a film. You know, and I think it's more than it's more than possible. You don't have to spend a whole lot of money, but I think a distinction needs to be made between creating um, films for the craft and creating films as a product. Like when you go shoot micro films, that's creating it for the craft. Like you shouldn't go spamming that out and trying to make a web series out of that. That should be like, I want to experiment with this suspense or I want to see what close-ups. I want to experiment with the usage of close-ups or, Hey, I saw this shot and drive. I want to replicate it in a little micro film. You shouldn't be spending money on these micro films. Like it should be literally go have coffee with a couple actors. Hey, I want to shoot something. You shoot it. You know, like most of the microfilms, I can shoot them in like two hours, except the last one I've shot. It was like four or five, but they should be focused on craft, though, you know, and you can get it busted out in the editing room and uh, learn your stuff. Man, I, I think people don't do that enough, especially yeah. if you're trying to be a director, especially 
<laughs> you need the practice, man. I watched a really good filmmaking channel of the guy who did that Annabelle movie. He went from making a short that got picked up. Um, it won some contest called, it was called Lights Out, where it was just this horror little viral thing that went around where, you know, this it's in the lights, there's nothing there, but when this light goes out, there's like this thing in the shadows and it was quite spooky well that got turned into a full feature because that little clip thing went viral and then this guy basically got elevated from tiny little micro film to working on the feature but in his channel he talks about his whole experience and he's like you know going from that to this it was crazy the biggest challenge was just having to answer thousands of questions i've made this mistake i made a little horror film called unsettled i basically did everything wrong you know it was like telling an actress like she's got these lines and she'd say it and i'm like no no don't say it like this say it like this and she just wouldn't say it and then i realized you know i should have done basically what you said where i should have done like microfilms and learned about it all but i got too busy caught up in the whole pre-production for say three months before I shot this thing like buying lights and all this kind of stuff but yeah I think what you say there is so right that you know just get out there and make as many of these little films to, to learn from because ultimately we do we we tend to learn from our mistakes the other side of it is don't try and be the next Chris Nolan just try and be you and have your own voice that's true but to, in order to find that voice well that's not true because some people they have a very distinct voice out the gate but I think people, you really got to shoot more and you can attest to this. I know you can. Have you ever went and shot something and you weren't like particularly like you didn't plan it out the best, you know, and it was just a spur of the moment thing. Right. And and you had so much fun shooting it, though. And you're like, wow, it's really fun to just shoot this. Like, why don't I shoot stuff more? Yeah. Yeah. Just that feeling of just doing it, you know, like. It doesn't matter if you're on a $300 million feature or a $2 microfilm. Framing up a close-up is fun. Framing up a close-up on a nice photogenic face is fun. With nice lighting, get them next to a window. Every single time it gets me. Every single time. I'm like, man, this looks good. This looks really <laughs> good. Why don't I do this more? I'm, I'm going to do this next week. Like, it's just doing the thing is fun. And... Uh, to touch base on what you were talking about earlier with uh, the whole directing and all the questions, I find that the more you do it, the more you know what you should put your focus on and what you shouldn't. And by that, I mean, obviously, you should pay attention to everything. But I mean, there are certain things that require your attention and very careful manipulation. And then there are other things where you can dump a lot of energy and a lot of thought into it. And it's completely not worth that amount of thought. Like you realize later on, you're like, man, why did I spend so much time like ruling over this decision? It's like we didn't end up using it or you don't even see it. Or I spent all this time trying to think of what to tell this actor. And like it's like all for naught. Like I really could have just said, hey, you know, just tell the other person you're going to grab a glass of water. Boom. Scene done. I could have <laughs> cut like these 10 lines here because we don't even need them. You know, I find if you do it more you become better at distinguishing those moments. Like somebody comes and says, should it be a yellow shirt or a blue shirt? Hmm. Blue shirt. Why? Because it doesn't really matter what color it should be. Like the palette of this film is very just kind of diverse. You know, it's not like a Tim Burton film or it's not like, 
You know, like there are some films where it's like the guy needs to have a red suit and he's in the desert. It's important that his suit is red because he's in the desert. We need him to pop out and it's supposed to mean this or mean that. But not every film has that. You know, some films are just random. Other films are very neutral colors. Everybody's got gray or some shade of gray on. But you just get better at telling that stuff and you don't have to stress about so much. And what you said about, you know, was there a time when you were filming something and it just like was so much fun? And the very first time, because I was filming weddings and stuff like that, not fun. I hated them. Absolutely hated them. Um, And it wasn't until I filmed an event and met someone there and he said, I'm working on this World War II project. Do you want to come along? There'll be like some reenactors there. We'll have like, you know, we're doing it at this set which is like my dad's like railway station like a, and he said yeah come along and help me direct these like these nazis and i'm like okay and i never had so much fun in my life and even since that day i still haven't had as much fun because even after it i was knackered but i in my head i just kept thinking about the scenes and kept thinking about the whole day and it was just you know when you're absolutely buzzing about something when i saw the footage back i was like oh this is so cool we got a slider shot in there we'd never used a slider in our lives my friend bought one and we didn't know how to use it so it was like proper wobbly and all this but it's it still makes me smile (laughs) when i uh look back at it because we've got like this um, big briefcase being opened with like this kind of spielberg s dolly shot i remember at the time going oh this is this is what i want to be doing and you know that was a lot of fun and then like three years later when i made this horror film that was not fun that was just stress because the pre-production took say three months and then the actual shoot itself we started filming in may rich in the uk it gets dark pretty much all year round apart from summer and it was getting dark at 10 o'clock in may and i was asking actors to get to the house like location and they were there from five o'clock i'd be wanting to get eight shots done and we would be coming home with like two shots it was so stressful like kind of how peter jackson was in uh in that behind the scenes on the hobbit when he's like i don't know how i'm going to finish this in time now obviously he had millions of dollars behind him i didn't (laughs) but you know looking back at it it's like i'm glad i did that because i learned so much from it and uh that was kind of like my next uh question like what uh problems have you had on set and what was the 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 you know at the time it seemed like the worst problem in the world whether you lost the location lost an actor but then how you dealt with it turned out you know even better than what it originally was Hmm. well for the the feature film I shot, I made, I took very good care to write to locations I already knew I had access to and already knew I didn't have to worry about. But I was exposed on one location because I needed a hospital. And, you know, hospitals are tremendously hard to get into because they're functional. They're mission based. You know, they're not going to say, oh, yeah, we'll shut down for filming. No, it's a, <laughs> it's a working live hospital. So, um, there were two spots that I had written and I usually don't do this. You know, I don't like writing in a vacuum and then you just got to go look for stuff. Like Mm -hmm. if you're doing resource filmmaking on a low budget, I don't think anybody should be doing that because that's so much stress. Um, but I needed like a hospital room with a hospital bed and we lucked out. And one of my friend's dad worked at a hospital, which I didn't even know this at the time. And, um, they had closed an entire wing down for renovations. So, Uh, We were able to get in there and get shots through my friend's dad who had the connections and all that during the week that they were renovating. So got tremendously lucky there. And then there was another 
part of a hospital we needed that was like a lobby area and it was like a mental health hospital that we needed. And I had gone to a place I was familiar with and said, Hey, yeah, I'm a filmmaker. You know, I make shorts. Um, I would like to use this location, you know, with your permission. I asked to see who I could speak to. That person came out and I gave them the pitch and um, told them, Hey, you know, I could share a link um, to a short that I've done to give you an idea of what we're trying to do. His initial answer was no. And it was like a hard no too. He's like, no, no. Yeah, no, we just, we don't do that kind of thing here. No, we don't do it. And I was like, okay, I understand. Well, Hey, you know, I'll email you the link anyways. No, no hard feelings. I'd, I'd love for you guys to just check it out. Months and months later, he emailed back after watching it and he said, wow, this is like really amazing. It's so good. I went and talked to my boss about it. And then he talked to his boss about it. And like, we're all on board. Like, we'd love to help you do this. But at first it was such a hard no that I didn't think we had a chance. And then we went and we spoke to, or by me, we, I mean, I, I went and spoke to like <laughs> a whole bunch of other places that could have doubled for what we were looking for. And they all said no. So at the point, like I had everybody in town I knew that I went to, they all said no. And I was pretty much out of luck. And then, you know, months later he emailed back and it was on the coattails of like the last place that I had said no. And he's like, we'd love to help you. And it's like, wow, like, <laughs> man, like how, how would we have done it had he not followed through and actually watched it? You know, he could have been like, well, I already told the guy, no, I'm not interested. Eh. But he actually watched it and really liked it. So I think that was the biggest struggle I had with the feature. There was a lot of lessons I learned in the edit, but I wouldn't say they were struggles so much as it was just the process. Um, and there were a few edits I had where I was like, man, did I just make a lemon? Did I just blow all this money <laughs> on this film? You know, and you, you do little feedback screenings with the people closest to you and they kind of have the same feeling. They're like, I don't know what it is. Something's just, something's just not there. Like we missed the mark or something. And what it really was, was the edit just wasn't tight enough. And it took several edits to really get it down to the point where it was singing and then it was all there once it tightened up. Um, but sometimes you have those points where, especially if you're doing dramas or something that's not exactly like mainstream straight and narrow, like you have to find those moments where it needs to breathe. And then the moments where it doesn't. And sometimes that can be really tricky. Like the only way to find it is to have test screenings and continue having feedback screenings with fresh eyeballs and see where the audience is and what they're doing. I feel. I mean, unless you're a professional editor and you edit all the time, then for them, they could probably spot it right away. But if you're new or it's one of your first features or whatever, it's really, really tricky, especially on top of that. You're so saturated in your own work that sometimes you lose perspective yourself like you can't even see it for yourself. So that was that was interesting to me. And that was another one of those moments where I learned the lesson that I knew that I thought I knew anyway, <laughs> and then a life experience frames it for you in a way that makes it all clear. Um, and I think for me, just as a side note, um, one of the big messages I have for audiences out there is the importance of doing because of context, like information means absolutely nothing without context. And I feel like when you learn stuff out of a book, or when you watch a YouTube episode and you hear stuff, facts thrown at you, you may, you may even see some good examples, but it doesn't mean anything 
without the context of practical experience. It means absolutely nothing. And I can tell you this because it's happened to me. It's happened to my friends. And it's like you you make these stupid mistakes and you're like, but I knew this. Like, how did I how did I make this mistake? And what it is, is you don't have context. It's just information bouncing around in your head. It's like when you go to a party, right? And your friend introduces you to 10 people. And so you get 10 names right there in the span of a minute. Do you remember any of those names? No. You just get named soup. You're like, okay, here's Bob. He works here. Here's Jill. Here's Leroy. Here's Ty. Here's Taylor. You know, and you're like, okay, cool. Nice to meet all of you. And you forget the names right away. But it's not until you talk to them one at a time, hear their story. They hear your story. You get to study them a little bit, study their features. Oh, Taylor's actually really short. Or Bob reminds me of this dude I knew from, you know, high school or whatever. Now you remember all the names because now there's context. There's something else anchoring the names to you. I feel like all the information about film is the exact same thing. You have to actually do stuff for it to stick, for it to mean anything. What's the dream project? So say if you got a call from some big producer said, you know, I've been looking at your YouTube channel and your budgets, whatever you want. Who would you like to collaborate with? What actors would you like to get? Man, that's a really tough question. (laughs) Uh, That's really tough because I've been in YouTube land for so long. Um, delving into that world and working on lower budgets after taking a step away from spending a lot of money that a lot of those kind of fantasies faded away from me. And that's not to say I would never want to do them. It's just, I haven't indulged that for so long. Like I'm, I'm in a space of what can I do now that I can actually do. And, um, I mean, I have dream ideas I would like to do, but I also know that if that producer were to call me up and say, hey, we love what you do on YouTube, what would you like to do? That call would more be like, hey, we love what you're doing on YouTube. We have this thing Mm. that we've already, you know, scoped out a market for and we're already making data driven decisions. Are you interested (laughs) in hopping on board? You know, (laughs) it's like, oh, okay. well, you already got the idea. You just need a director. And, you know, that's more so what you're looking at most of the time, which I understand because I'm that way with YouTube. It's like um, a lot of my decisions on YouTube are data driven. It's like it takes a lot of work to make these videos, man. So you don't want to spend all that time on a video and then it gets like no views. You know, it's like I want to make sure I'm making content that there's a demand for. You know, I'm not I'm not into the throw spaghetti at the wall and see what sticks thing. I'm just, I've done that before when I was first starting out, that was my whole motto. Just, it's all about the art, all about the art, just make it. And then the audience (laughs) will find it, you know, and after being out there on the festival circuit multiple times and seeing how that works and then doing YouTube, that's what I originally did on YouTube. And you just, you just grow into more of a, a balance where it's, I'm more of a commercial artist now, not so much an artist. I dabble in art occasionally because sometimes you got that idea you just got to do and you're not worried about the numbers. But for the most part, my decisions artistically are guided by the business side of things. It keeps the business side, keeps the artistic side in check so that I don't just become indulgent making stuff that nobody finds useful. You know, (laughs) and I think it's too easy to become an indulgent artist, but um, but I feel like Hollywood's the same way. Um, a lot of the smart producers, there are some jerks out there, of course, but a lot of the ones who are successful, they make data-driven decisions. They follow the business and they know the market really well. And they don't make something unless they, they vetted out the demand for it. 
Um, and I'm more inclined to do that. Most of the stuff I've watched this year that has really sort of captivated me has been TV with these, you know, these series that come out on like Netflix. You know, I love the cinema experience. I love watching a movie on the big screen with an audience. But the TV stuff that I've watched this year, I think the only good film I've seen this year on the big screen was Dunkirk. But TV-wise, you know, like I watched the show 13 Reasons Why, which at the time I thought, I don't want to watch a show about TV teenagers and suicide and then I, my friend was like watch the first episode and i was hooked and it was made so well I, mean, I imagine you want your films to be shown on the big screen and not just you know people watching them on the phone or watching them um you know on a on a tv you know i think uh you know i'm not and i may be like held to the fire or like stoned for this but <laughs> I'm so used to people watching stuff on a phone or on an iPad. I mean, everything people are watching on Netflix, they're all in iPads, phones, TVs at home. I'd rather be in front of your face on an iPad than to have a, an extremely limited theatrical release where you lose tons and tons of money. And I'm just, I'm just not, I don't know. I'm not super sold on the theatrical. If I get theatrical, great. Awesome. But... I, I, to, to me, the bigger fish is building a brand and building an audience long term. That to me is the bigger fish. Like whether it plays on a silver screen or not, like eh, you know, it's it's not that big of a deal to me. I'm so used to people seeing content in other ways, myself included. I mean, I've seen some great movies on my uh, not my iPad, my tablet, you know. Really good movies where I'm so into the movie, I don't care that it's not on the big screen. Like, I'm just into it. So, and two, part of this is a bias that I understand how much goes into a theatrical release on the independent scale, and it's just nightmarish. The number of resources, the time, the stress, the promotion. And it, for an independent, unless you have a company backing you, it's just not worth it. It's not worth it. Um, and even with the company backing, there's a lot of business side stuff that I don't know. To me, it's like, keep it simple, stupid. You know, if you if you get to a point where your brand is big enough and you can get people behind you to do it, great. Show it on the big screen. It feels good, you know. But, you know, I've had I've had it played a, a number of my films played at festivals and I got that big screen experience. Um, and it's just like a kid with a toy after a while. <laughs> the toy gets old you know it's like okay well i had that now i'm thinking of like how are we paying bills <laughs> how are we you know what I mean? you're thinking of the grown adult stuff you know what i mean like the the twinkle on the theater is cool for a little while but you know the bigger questions start to sink in um but i'm not opposed to it the short answer it's cool but i'm not opposed to it and how did you feel when you had your film on the on the big screen? Did you enjoy it? Was it an enjoyable experience or were you anxious when it was on? Very, very anxious. But I knew the film by the time it was playing, by the time the feature anyway was playing in festivals, I was very confident that we hit the mark because yeah. I had done so many cuts of the film so many test screenings. I went to the film school that I attended and we got a test screening out of them and we did feed. We handed out the sheets and everything and then went and did two or three more cuts of it. So I was more than confident that if people didn't like it, it was because it wasn't for them, not because we didn't execute it well, if that makes sense. It's like, okay, if you didn't like it, it just wasn't for you. 
it's not that we made a bad movie. It's just, it just wasn't for you. You know, like I crossed, crossed every T and dotted every I. So <laughs> I know it couldn't be any tighter than, I mean, I cut it so tight one time that I had to put breathing space back into it, you know? So then I knew what the limit was. So, um, it, you always get a little nervous, but, um, I think if you really put your all into it, usually the experience is gratifying, very gratifying. But before that I'd had number, a number of films play on the big screen while I was in film school though, you know, because you make thesis films and junior films and, you know, they, at first they're on projectors in a classroom and then the thesis films are on big screens. And then I had toured the short film around on the film fest circuit before I toured the feature. So I was, I was accustomed to that feeling of seeing it on a big screen in front of an audience by then. I, I did, um, after doing that world war two thing. So I did another action thing called contract being part of this project with, again, my friend who did the world war two thing. And it was more a, uh, yeah, there's this whole battle and, you know, we had, stock footage of planes and bombs and all this crazy stuff and it was half an hour long in the end the whole film and we got a showing of it at the local cinema i've never felt so anxious in my life not before the film was played but we i mean we we had it like a sellout so everybody was there all my friends and family were there and the people who were involved were there and we had a pretty big cast because we had lots of extras and all these reenactors again who were you know like kids with toys and stuff like that and so we had a pretty full um, cinema, and it was at a uh, near like a college. So there was loads of college kids there as well because they did this thing where they had short films played before a feature. So it was full, and I remember like feeling fine in the auditorium, like this is going to be cool and get a seat. And then as soon as like my After Effects stupid animation logo began, I felt so anxious. I was looking around everybody. I didn't even look at the film. It was something that I wasn't at all ready for i didn't like expect how anxious i'd feel during it and at the end of it no one's applause no one's clapped but they waited till the last credited roll and then the applause happened and i kind of had a bit of relief yeah it was it was a weird place to be i wasn't lucky enough to have that little steps to get the to that it was, just, it was fun looking back but at the time it was like ah it was like it felt like man when did i edit this into like a three-hour epic because that's what it feels like right now but yeah <laughs> <laughs> so what's the future for um, for Darius and and your YouTube channel? Uh, for the YouTube, uh, the future, I plan to do a lot more short films and a lot more micros and breaking them down and structuring them in a way where, you know, I'm showing people how to use a particular camera and then we go shoot a short with it and show you how we did it with that camera, whatever lens we use, just more in-depth um processes about filmmaking on a larger scale and also touching on story, you know, so as opposed to breaking down story and short film reviews, then I can break down how we did the story and why we did it in this format. So it's just like a nice package, you know, and I want to pull like every camera off the shelf, every prosumer camera out there that, you know, someone who's thinking about filmmaking wants to use. I want to pull it off the shelf do a tutorial on how to use the camera, go shoot a short with it, break down that short, the whole process with like every single camera is what I would like to do. Because I get that question so often, what camera should I buy? What camera should I buy? What camera should I use? What camera should I use? And it's like, well, I'd like to just answer it with a link. Here's a URL. <laughs> you know, like you don't have to imagine what it would look like anymore. Like here's an example of something well done, well shot with that camera. 
And even cameras that aren't typically film cameras, I'd like to do it with just to drive home the point that it doesn't matter what you're using. Now, yes, if you want something on Netflix, you can't go shoot it with a Canon PowerShot. True. Netflix is probably not going to pick it up. But um, I think the general consensus is, you know, you can still get your name out there. You can still make credible work with really any camera. Um, especially if you're trying to build a brand online or in the festival circuit, it, the tools don't really matter. I mean, when I had my short film Seafood Tester, when that was finished, we screened at Aspen, which is uh, at the time was Oscar qualifying. It was one of the top two shorts fests in North America. We were screening in competition against films that had $400,000 budgets. And I had spent 1500 on that. So it really doesn't matter what your budget, what the camera, it really like, do you know what in the world you're doing? Because if you do, all that other stuff becomes less important. But if you don't, sure, the more money you got, throw all the money you got. At it. You know what I mean? Like, eat every production value you got, you know, if you don't know yeah. what you're doing, sure. But I, I want to continue driving that point home. And if it means like bigger, longer, more expensive, more engrossing videos, um, that's okay with me. And in terms of getting back into features and all that, I plan to do that too. Once I like get unsound out of the door officially, you know, and I get some time to get back into nuts and bolts of that and go through the hard drives and do all that, I'll probably get back into features again. But before I go full bore into, you know, like doing a crowdfund or finding producers and all that, I would probably do like a series on how to shoot like a, thousand dollar feature or something something ridiculously cheap just to again show the audience you know like hey so since you don't have any money what can you focus on for free yeah story and just make sure it's like good yeah. like good good you know um so i want to keep driving that home because i feel when i came up in film school i didn't have that example for me i didn't have the example of hey here's some guys doing it for nothing you know, yeah. Mumblecore was just was just happening when I was yeah. in film school. They hadn't sat. Well, I, I still don't think they've saturated the market. I think for anybody who's into film and you're in it long enough looking, you eventually bump into the name Mumblecore. But I don't think um, especially now they're doing Netflix and all that. So they're no longer in that space. But I don't think that there has been an example that was really readily accessible to this generation to show you, hey, everybody keeps saying story matters, money doesn't matter, but we're showing you, we're giving you examples of why it doesn't matter. Here's a real world example you can see for yourself. This is what we spent. This is what we use. These are all cameras you can get off the shelf. I don't think we have had that yet. And that's something I'm excited to, to provide. Darius, thank you for talking to us today. And we appreciate your time. Thank you so much, Simon. And thanks for the opportunity and keep hustling. I think you, if you keep up at it, it's going to work out for you. <laughs>